welcome back to the Sunday evening service. We're glad you're with us again tonight, and uh, we're going to ask the Lord's blessing upon what we do together. But first, let's read his word. And so uh, open your Bible, please, to Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16 tonight. Malachi 2, 10 through 16. And the word of the Lord says this, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughters of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of his youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time of study together tonight. Lord Jesus, we come before you grateful that you have given us in your word the riches. Everything we need for life and godliness is right here in your word. So we count on you to be our teacher tonight to help us to understand. Thank you for this passage of scripture that you put before us. Thank you for the people who are listening. Thank you for the privilege of thinking about these things together. Make this a fruitful and productive time that glorifies your name tonight, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. How important is it that we keep our promises? Does it matter if we're faithful to our word? Is it okay to let things slide a little when times get difficult? Surely no one expects us to be faithful to our word when the situation is changed and keeping our promises might be more costly or more inconvenient than we had originally planned? Does it matter at all if we're faithful in every one of our commitments? Perhaps the seriousness of keeping our promises begins to come into view when we hear God quietly asking, does it matter if I keep my promises to you? As believers, we realize that our whole future depends on the certainty that God will keep his commitments to us. Is it unreasonable, then, that God expects that we will keep our commitments to him and to others around us? Now, in the text we have before us tonight, we're going to learn that because God is a covenant-keeping God, we ought to be a covenant-keeping people. Tonight, we're going to look at this passage from three perspectives. We're going to look, first of all, in verses 10 through 12, at the social perspective. What does it mean socially? if we break our promises or keep them. And then we're going to look in verses 13 through 16 at the marital perspective. How does this matter of keeping covenant or keeping promise impact us 
in terms of our marital uh, commitments that we've made. And then finally, in verses 15 and 16, we're going to see the heart perspective. Where does failure come from? Why do we fail when we don't keep our promises, when we don't keep the commitments that we've made? So let's begin with seeing what happens to our relationship with others when we fail in our relationship with God. In verses 10 through 12, we see that the social covenant had been broken among the people of Israel. Verses 10 through 12, God begins to make his complaint to the people. He says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? To this point in the book, God's been addressing the spiritual leaders of his people, the priests. But beginning here, he turns his attention to the people of the covenant, the nation of Judah. The priest's failure in ministry had permitted spiritual failure in the lives of his people. But the fact that his priests had not done their work faithfully did not provide an excuse for the failure of the people. God holds both priest and people responsible for their spiritual condition. You know, because we live in such an individualistic society, we often fail to see the interrelated nature of the community of believers that's being addressed in these verses. Perhaps we tend to think of ourselves as individuals who relate to God merely individually, but God doesn't see things that way. Alistair Begg helps us to understand with more clarity by noting that when Jesus saved us, he didn't save us in isolation. He saved us as individuals, but he brought us into his family. We're in a family relationship together because of our salvation. God never intended for his family to be isolated from one another as we're experiencing today during this time of social distancing. This may be necessary for a while, but sooner or later we're going to have to come back together at BFC. And there may be some people that are thinking, well, I don't know, this is working out pretty well for me. You know, I I don't have to get dressed to go to church. I can be in my pajamas. The kids can be running around. Why do we have to go to church? Why is it necessary for us to come back together? Well, it's necessary because God made us, the body of Christ, one body, one family in him. What kind of a family is it that never sits down for a meal together? What kind of a family would it be that never sat across a table and talked to each other? No, no, dear ones, we have to come back together. And it's important that we understand that because we're in Christ, we are one family, Listen to God's words to his people through Malachi. He says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? God began dealing with his people by pointing out here their basic union because they had the same Father and Creator, God himself. Don't think of this as merely God addressing the family of man, meaning every human being without exception. It certainly is true that God is creator of each human being. But only his chosen people have the right to call him by that intimate name of Father. So God's addressing his special people here. And what is his complaint? It's that they have been faithless to each other. It's worth our while to look closely at the meaning of that word faithless, since it's used five different times in verses in this passage that we have before us tonight. You know, other versions of the Bible 
use a different English word to express the idea of the Hebrew word that's being translated, uh, translated here. Some say that it means deceitfully. The people were somehow deceiving one another. Perhaps the best word to use to translate it, however, is treacherously. The people were being treacherous to each other, meaning that they were betraying a confidence between them. Now, how were they doing this? The text goes on to make that very plain. They were profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, it means that they were breaking the covenant of God, the covenant that he had made with the Jewish people in the wilderness. When they failed to keep the covenant promises made between God and their forefathers in the wilderness, that they would only worship God, that they would always be faithful to him alone, when they failed in that commitment, they actually betrayed each other. And that's because the people were not only in covenant with God, but also in covenant with one another. And every act of unfaithfulness to God weakens and erodes the people of God as a whole. Now think about it. Because we are one family in Christ, when we fail to worship the Lord as we should, we're actually doing damage to all the other members of the body of Christ, the church. This idea was expressed by the Apostle Paul to the people in Corinth in his day. He said to them, If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. And that's as true today as it was in Paul's day for the people of Corinth, and just as it was true for the people of Malachi's day in Judah. Every disobedience to God by a believer is a betrayal of every other fellow believer in the body of Christ. How were the people in Malachi's day betraying each other? Well, verse 11 tells us, For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The men of Judah were intermarrying with foreign women, a thing that God's law specifically forbade them to do. God had forbidden his people to do this, knowing that if unbelieving women married Jewish men, it wouldn't take long for there to be unbelieving children and half-hearted fathers coming into his temple and permeating his society. By unequally yoking themselves to unbelievers, the men of Malachi's day were denying that there was any difference between the God of the Bible and the pagan deities of the nations around them, whose women they were welcoming to come into their homes. How serious was this sin in God's eyes? Well, verse 12 tells us, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. In other words, God's sentence was excommunication from his community for any man who betrayed God and his people by doing such a thing. So what's the point of these three verses? The point is simply this. As believers, we're involved in a social covenant with all other believers, and disobedience by one damages all the other members of the family of God. Band of Brothers is a nonfiction book by historian Stephen Ambrose telling the story of Easy Company of the 101st Airborne Division of the American Army as it was fighting its way through Europe in World War II. The title Band of Brothers is highly significant. As the story develops, we come to realize that the men of Easy Company are not simply a casual band of soldiers who've been thrown together in a moment of necessity. They become a family struggling together out of loyalty for one another. 
These men didn't fight because they were patriots, though they were the most patriotic of men. They didn't fight together so well because they were men under authority, though of course it was true, they were men under authority. They weren't even fighting to protect their loved ones at home, though of course it is true that they were doing that as well. These men did extraordinary acts of courage and sacrifice because they felt in the core of their souls that the worst thing they could ever do was to let their fellow soldiers down. They were a band of brothers, and that made them an extraordinary band of warriors for the cause they were fighting for. I wonder if most Christians today realize that when we accepted Christ, we got more than we bargained for. Our great concern at that moment was probably for the fate of our own souls. God had opened our eyes to see our personal need and our eternal destiny. We gratefully accepted eternal life and felt relief that we'd been rescued by a gracious Savior. And all of that is wonderfully true, but has it dawned on us that we've also been placed into a band of brothers? That the way that we live our lives either helps or hurts our fellow believers around us who are counting on our faithfulness to help them hear the well done at the end. Does it matter to us that this is true? What does it say about who we really are if this truth does not resonate within us? Once we're gripped by this truth, the way we live our lives takes on a new significance and accountability. Have you come to realize that the way you live out your Christian life matters to someone other than yourself? Now, we come to verses 13 through 16, where God's complaint changes. He begins to talk to them about their shattering of the marital covenant. He said, this is the second thing that you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your own hands. God had a second complaint against his people, and he introduces it here in this interesting way. He noted in verse 13 that you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning. And, and what is he saying? Why they, they were complaining because God didn't seem to accept their offerings. They would go to the temple. They would make their offerings. God didn't seem to pay any attention. And they said, well, now, why is he not doing this? Why wouldn't God accept their offerings any longer? Well, verse 14 tells us, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. See, these men were divorcing their wives. Again, this is another breach of a covenant relationship to which they were being unfaithful. And evidently, what was happening here was that as their wives grew older, these men began to look around for younger, more attractive women. And the strong implication of the context is that they were finding these women in the pagan cultures around Judea, and hence the complaint of their marrying these foreign wives that we just studied in verses 10 through 12. But whether they were marrying foreign wives or other Jewish women really isn't the issue. What especially offended God about this was their violation of the covenant relationship of marriage. See, marriage is a covenant relationship made before God between two people. God is a covenant-keeping God. He never goes back on his promises, but these men were breaking the vows that they had made to their wives, and God took that very seriously indeed. Why did this so offend God? Well, look in verse 15 where we're told, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? 
God's the author of human marriage, and in this union, he's done something special. He takes a man and a woman, two individual human beings, and in marriage, he joins them into one new unit. One single human unity that he joins together, body and soul, which is the meaning of that little phrase, with a portion of the Spirit in their union. When a man and a woman exchange vows before God and man, something supernatural takes place. God joins these two individuals into one new thing. And this is why Jesus said about marriage in Matthew 19, verse 6, So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God's intention for marriage is that the union of two into one become insoluble, an indestructible bond that can only be broken under very specific conditions. In marriage, says Warren Wiersbe, a man and a woman become one flesh, and God is a partner in that union. Marriage is a physical union, says Wiersbe, one flesh, and can only be broken by physical causes, the death of a spouse. We're told that in Romans 7. Sexual sin, we're told that in Matthew 19. Or desertion of the other spouse, we're told that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now this is highly significant to God because in the covenant relationship of marriage, God has given us a picture of his relationship to his people. God took the violation of the marital union so seriously in Malachi's day because marriage pictures his union with his people. Not only did God take seriously this violation in Malachi's day, he also takes it seriously in our day. Listen to Paul's words to the people of Corinth. He said, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. When you and I come to Christ, we're joined to him in a covenant union through the church. The scriptures often refer to the church as the bride of Christ. If you've put your faith in Christ, you're part of that union. In a sense, all believers are married to Jesus, and so the union of two believers in marriage to each other today symbolizes God's union of his people with himself through Jesus Christ. Now, let's be very clear about this matter. God is a covenant-keeping God. He never goes back on his promises to his people. He never breaks his promises, and to do so would be to violate his integrity. And if you think about it, what a blessing the truth of that is. Your salvation and my salvation depends on God's faithfulness in keeping his promises to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. To break his promise would be a shameless act of violence on his part, and that's just the way he describes divorce among his people in verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife, the text says, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, that man covers his garment with violence. Divorce is an act of violence against the injured party in God's eyes, and it's a violation of his picture of his own faithfulness to his people. The point in this paragraph is that because God is a covenant-keeping God, he expects us to be a covenant-keeping people. Hearts and Bones is a song written a number of years ago by Paul Simon. So far as I know, Paul Simon's not a believer, but in this song he's written a singular line that never fails to draw my attention. 
Simon wrote in the lyrics of his song, you take two bodies and you twirl them into one and they won't come undone. Hearts and bones, hearts and bones, hearts and bones. Now, what does he mean? He says that when you join two people together in the physical union of marriage and in the spiritual union of marriage, it's impossible to undo that without damage. What a line for an unbeliever to write into a song describing the tragedy and pain of divorce. In those words, Simon expressed the deep pain felt even by unbelievers through the violence of a shattered covenant of marriage called divorce. God considers divorce an act of violence because marriage is not simply a social arrangement constructed by man. It's the design of God himself for man. Because God's a covenant-keeping God, he refuses to bless his people when we neglect to reflect his character by keeping our covenant commitments to others. So, how are you doing? Are you a promise keeper? Are you keeping your promises to God? It matters to God, and it matters to man that we do. Now, looking at verses 15 and 16, we find the reason why covenants are broken. There's a reason why this happens. As we read the text, we'll notice that in verses 15 and 16, God has twice reiterated a phrase that draws our attention to the reason men and women fail to keep their covenant commitments. I want you to notice the phrase repeated twice for emphasis. First of all, in verse 15, So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And then again in verse 16, look, he repeats that same phrase almost verbatim. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, the key word to focus on in these two quotations is the word spirit. Spirit in this context means heart, signifying the deepest part of the human creature. When the Bible talks about the human spirit or the heart, it's speaking about the most essential part of who we are as individuals. In the Bible, this word heart signifies more than simply our emotions, although it does include that. More than our emotions, however, the Bible is speaking here of what we think and how we exercise our will and the choices that we make. Now, this concept is repeated twice here, and we ask ourselves, why is this so? Whenever we find something repeated like this in Scripture, we should pay careful attention to what's being said because these repetitions are never casual. When God repeats something, it's always because he wants to draw special attention to the thing that he's saying. So what is he saying? What he's saying here is that our failure to keep our covenant commitments results from a failure to keep our hearts in tune with him. We aren't keeping our minds in sync with him. We aren't keeping our emotions in sync with his. We aren't keeping our wills in sync with him. And so we fail to keep our commitments in sync with him. Proverbs 4.23 reinforces the truth being conveyed here. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Now what God is saying here is simply this. If we don't give God our heart for safekeeping, we'll mess up our lives every time. And what a sobering principle that is to reflect on. The point he's making 
is that we must guard our hearts, for from them flows all else that's of value in our lives. (laughs) It must be my night to quote non-Christian songwriters, because a line from Bob Dylan comes to mind in connection with this principle. In one of his lyrics, Dylan croons into the microphone, Come on, give it to me, I'll keep it with mine. I'm not sure exactly what Dylan wanted to be given to keep with his, but I know exactly what God wants us to give him for safekeeping. God wants our hearts. God wants the deepest part of our being. He wants our intellect. He wants our emotion. He wants our will to be put into his hands for safekeeping. The problem of Malachi's generation is a problem for our generation too. Too many of God's people have let their hearts drift away from what 2 Corinthians 11.3 describes as a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. One evident result of this is broken covenant relationships in marriages and families and churches and Christian institutions. Roger Ellsworth helps us understand the implications of this by saying, Twice in the passage, Malachi urges his people to take heed to their spirits so that they would not deal treacherously. In these words, the prophet registers his conviction, says Ellsworth, that the problem of unfaithfulness is rooted in man's spirit or heart. Now, this is a much-needed corrective. We live in an age when people seek to excuse their unfaithfulness on the basis of their circumstances. But Malachi will have none of this. Unfaithfulness in every area of life flows from a heart that is not right with God. How is your heart? Are you right with God in these matters? If you cannot honestly answer yes to that question, what should you do? Well, again, Ellsworth helps us out. He says, if our hearts are not right with God, there's only one way to get them right, and that is by repentance of sin. Repentance is necessary for the sinner to become a Christian, and repentance is necessary for the Christian who has strayed from the Lord. What is the consequence of failing to heed this call to repent? It is broken relationships that inevitably result in God withholding his blessings from his saints. Now, if that's what you're experiencing tonight, why should you allow that to continue even another day, dear one? Do you remember the old hymn? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. That's what the hymn writer wrote many years ago, but the message is still true. Come to the fountain. Confess your failing heart to him. He will pardon. He will cleanse. Dear ones, it is of utmost importance that we be people who keep our commitments because we belong to a God who never fails to keep his commitments. May God help us to be people who reflect his grace and his glory in this matter. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us out of your word tonight. We thank you that you call us to this serious business of being a promise-keeping people. We pray that you'll help us to be promise-keepers in gratitude for the fact that you have kept every one of your promises to us. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Thank you for joining us again tonight. Uh, I hope you've been blessed and that the things that we've discussed together tonight and studied together tonight will go deeply into our hearts. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.